High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. What's that you playing? Oh, just a little something of my own. Oh, stop it. You know what I want to hear. No, I don't. You played it for her, you played it for me. Well, I don't think I can remember. If she can stand it, I can. Play it. Yes, boss. Today's story revolves around one of the Hollywood Golden Era's most iconic stars, Humphrey Bogart. When you hear the name Humphrey Bogart, a few things likely come to mind. Movies like Casablanca, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, The African Queen, in which Bogart played adventurers who brought the cynicism of the city streets to exotic, dangerous foreign lands. Men for whom, to paraphrase French critic André Bazin, it is always the morning after. 
Peter Bogdanovich said Bogey looked right holding a gun, while Raymond Chandler noted approvingly that Bogart was the right man to play Detective Philip Marlowe in The Big Sleep because he could be tough without a gun. He was the man's man's matinee idol, his wearied stare and trench coat affectionately copied and or parodied by Jean-Paul Belmondo, Woody Allen, and Looney Tunes. You might have an idea of this icon of all-American masculine strength as part of a double act, his gruffness both matched and counterbalanced on screen and off by his beautiful, tough cookie young wife, Lauren Bacall. But Bogey didn't even meet Bacall until three quarters of his life and three previous wives were already behind him. Born in 1899, he died in 1957 at age 57, having made exactly 75 feature films beginning in 1930. Between 1936, when his role in The Petrified Forest gave his film career a desperately needed direction, and 1940, when High Sierra made him a top billable star, he made on average six movies a year. Before that, he was a journeyman who would work wherever he was wanted, traveling back and forth between Hollywood and the New York stage. It took Humphrey Bogart 44 years to find the love of his life, and almost that long to find his identity as an actor. Or, rather, to find a part he could play both on screen and off. Join us, won't you, as we uncover the true story of Bogey before Bacall. Okay. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. The future avatar of rugged individualism was born into comfort on New York's Upper West Side. His father, Belmont DeForest Bogart, was a surgeon, and his mother, Maud, was an incredibly prominent commercial illustrator and also a feminist who put her work on equal or higher footing to her familial responsibilities. Bogart moved his mother into the Chateau Marmont as soon as he became a star, and paid for her to maintain the lifestyle she'd become accustomed to until her death. But they weren't close through Humphrey's childhood, and lingering resentments on the part of the son might explain why, when his mother died in the occupation field on her death certificate, 
Bogart listed not artist or illustrator, but housewife. Young Bogart didn't exactly fit into the Silver Spoon set. He was a notorious underachiever at every private school to which his hopeful father sent him. He eventually dropped out of boarding school and joined the Navy, where, according to Bogart's official biographies, a bit of shrapnel scarred his lip permanently and distinctively. In fact, Bogart was discharged from the Navy without ever seeing action, and some sources say Bogart's lip was split by a slap to the mouth from his father, who then sutured his son himself and couldn't avoid leaving Humphrey permanently scarred. In the early 20s, when he was in his early 20s, Bogart started working in theater, first as a stage manager, and then, when he realized there was no such thing as a rich stage manager, as an actor. He was initially typecast as a classic juvenile, meaning a young pretty boy fit for romantic roles. His first movie studio contract was with Fox, who signed him at $400 a week in 1930. But Fox didn't know what to do with him. They even tried to make him a cowboy, but it didn't take. And after a year, Bogart was released and went back to Broadway. He went back and forth between the coasts for a few years, doing theater until one studio or another lured him back out west with a promise of a contract, then after a few pictures returning to New York with a vow never to come back to Hollywood. And then the same cycle would start over again. He made movies with Spencer Tracy, Betty Davis, and Joan Blondell, but he was no one's idea of a distinguished presence on screen. The cycle was broken with the play The Petrified Forest, in which Bogart was cast against type as a gangster. Bogart's co-star on stage was Leslie Howard, who told Warner Brothers he would only reprise his role in the movie version if Bogart got to repeat his part, too. And so Bogart signed a new contract. Warner Brothers was the studio that represented the working class, the immigrants. Some of their male stars were guys like Paul Muni, Edward G. Robinson, and Jimmy Cagney, actors of Jewish or Irish ancestry who spoke to an audience made up in large part of first- or second-generation Americans. At age 37, Bogart no longer looked like the blue-blood pretty boy he had been in his early days on the stage. His face was starting to show the signs of a life hard-lived. But he also lacked any identifiable ethnicity— and this gave his casting as the Petrified Forest's gangster a ripped-from-the-headlines spin. Humphrey Bogart was an American son, just like Clyde Barrow and John Dillinger and all the other middle American outlaws whose exploits and spectacular deaths dominated Depression-era news. Warner Brothers regularly cast Bogart as the stock heavy to less-than-stellar results. Even in good movies, he wasn't always good, Bogart barely registers opposite Jimmy Cagney in the Roaring Twenties, and when he went against type, as he did as the Irish horse trainer in the Betty Davis vehicle Dark Victory, he didn't fare much better. Bogart wasn't happy, but he had a philosophy. Just keep working. He saved his money religiously. He called his bank account his FU fund, reasoning it would someday buy him freedom to tell some big shot to go to hell. Actually, Bogart's career started to accelerate in part thanks to the insubordination of another actor. George Raft and Bogart had roomed together during one of Bogart's early stints in Hollywood. From his second lead breakout in the original Scarface onward, George Raft specialized in playing gangsters, and he had rare first-hand knowledge of the underworld, having grown up on the mean streets of Hell's Kitchen and eventually befriending Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky. 
Raft had helped to establish the look of the movie gangster. The white shirt, the skinny black tie, a look which real gangsters soon picked up in homage to the screen. But Raft somehow didn't understand his own stardom. Apparently hungry for some kind of moral legitimacy, he refused the gangster role in the 1937 film Dead End, unless the script be rewritten so that he could deliver a crime-don't-pay message to the kids. Instead, Bogart got the part. Then, Raft turned down the part of the convict for hire in Raoul Walsh's High Sierra, because the criminal, in accordance with Hollywood's censorship code, was shot in the end, and Raft was tired of playing guys who got shot. Bogart was happy to take the bullet, but he only got the chance after Paul Muni, John Garfield, and Edward G. Robinson all turned the role down. But that movie gave Bogart his first chance to prove that a gangster could be more than a gangster. He could be a romantic hero, and his death could be something like a tragedy. The die was cast. Bogart became the criminal tough that moviegoers were sure was secretly, or not so secretly, not that bad at all. Over his next few major films, this persona morphed a bit, until by the time Casablanca won Best Picture at the Oscars, the bogey persona was fully codified. A rogue, an outsider, a noncommittal loner who, over the course of the movie, is given something to care about, an impetus to very coolly do what needs to be done. He's a man who says he doesn't care about anything, but whose actions belie that claim. As World War II went on, this image of adult, unsentimental masculinity became highly desirable, and Bogart became a new kind of American hero. Bogart's persona was of a man with no pretense and no patience for bullshit. But off-camera, he wasn't the men he played. Joseph Mankiewicz, who directed Bogart in one of his final movies, The Barefoot Contessa, remembered that you'd go out to dinner with him and somebody would come over to say hi, and you could see Bogart put on the tough guy character, as though he was slipping into an invisible trench coat. The silent film star Louise Brooks, who was friends with Bogart in the 1930s, wrote that Bogart had recognized that his first few goes in Hollywood had been a bust because he had failed to make an impression. And seeing that after the petrified forest, the press were all too happy to conflate the actor with his roles, Bogart played to the hard-boiled end of the spectrum. According to Brooks, he started practicing his snarls, sneers, and leers, grinding his theatrically trained diction down, and even picking up a slight lisp. According to Brooks, Bogart didn't come into his own so much as embrace a shtick that could stick. There was Humphrey Bogart when he was at home, and then... There was Bogey. There was one area, according to Louise Brooks, where Humphrey and Bogey overlapped. Both were almost religiously opposed to chasing women, habitually playing hard to get and forcing women to chase them. Which is not to say that Bogart's passivity had no strategy. He first married in 1926 to a prominent stage actress named Helen Menken. Menken pursued Bogart, who told his friends he wasn't interested. Bogart's friends helpfully suggested that a marital alliance with an already established actress might do some good for his own fledgling stage career. And so the wedding bells rang on May 20th, 1926, and then unrang a year later, while Menken was enjoying a big success on the stage in New York, and Bogart 
was languishing as a co-star in the failed theatrical comeback of the disgraced silent movie comedian Fatty Arbuckle. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. In April 1928, Bogart took his second wife, Mary Phillips, who was an actress herself, but of middling success, which at first made her the right, sympathetic partner for an actor whose career was going nowhere. In 1936, when Bogart came back to Hollywood to star in The Petrified Forest, he and Phillips moved into an apartment complex called the Garden of Allah, where a series of bungalows surrounded a pool allegedly designed in the shape of the Black Sea. But Bogart and his second wife didn't live there long. Mary became determined to maintain her stage career, even though Bogart was now making enough money in movies to support them both. And Bogart resented this. Mary ended up spending a lot of time in New York, and Bogart, alone in Los Angeles, got up to no good with a not-very-successful actress named Mayo Metho. Mayo has been described by some Bogart biographers as a firecracking seductress and by others as a sad, dumpy drunk who activated Bogart's pity chip. Either way, Mayo set her sights on Bogart as a prize to win, and at first, the two seemed like a perfect match. Like him, she was no-nonsense and could drink all night, and she made him laugh. Mary, it turned out, was having her own affair, and she left Bogart, which was not necessarily the desired outcome, Bogart now found himself with no excuse to not marry Mayo, which he did in August 1938. Witnesses say Bogart cried during the ceremony. Lauren Bacall later said he cried at every one of his own weddings, and with good reason. Sometime over the course of the wedding night, Bogart and the third Mrs. Bogart got into a fight, and the new groom and his pal Mel Baker took off together for Mexico leaving Mayo behind. The press called them the Battling Bogarts. Their fights were legendary, as was their drinking. Mayo was the kind of lady drunk who was quick to accuse any man who called quitting time before she did of being a fairy. With the paint still drying on his new tough guy persona, Bogart tried to live up to his third wife's expectations which would prove to be a doomed mission no matter how much he drank, but we'll get to that. In any case, there was also the fact that Bogart genuinely liked drinking, to the extent that he would sometimes do it all night long, and then show up at the studio in the morning without having slept, and yet ready to shoot. And that would make him kind of a kindred spirit to his soon-to-be close friend and collaborator, John Huston. 
Jed Houston was under contract to Warner Brothers as a screenwriter, but there was a clause in his contract that said that he could pick one film to direct himself. And he chose The Maltese Falcon, the Dashiell Hammett novel about the private eye Sam Spade, which had already been adapted for the screen twice under different names. Houston managed to convince Jack Warner that it had never been done right. Once again, George Raft was offered the lead in The Maltese Falcon. And once again, he turned it down, reasoning that it was too low budget and not, quote unquote, important. So Houston, who had also co-written High Sierra, cast Bogart. Their friendship was cemented on set, the pair often repairing with co-stars Peter Lorre and Mary Astor to the Lakeside Country Club for drinks after the day's wrap. Astor claimed she and Bogart had a brief affair during the shoot. Bogart, Astor said, always related to me like I had no clothes on. On set infidelity was actually pretty uncommon for Bogart but it's easy to see how a mundane co-star dalliance would have seemed like a respite from what Bogart had going on at home. The things that had originally attracted him to Mayo, her feistiness, her possessiveness, her ability to match him drink for drink, were starting to become a problem. Bogie said in one interview around this time, I like a jealous wife, and I like a good fight. This was presumably before the night when he returned home sober to find Mayo in a drunken rage. She lunged at him with a butcher knife, and the knife ended up in his back. Bogey passed out, and when he woke, he heard a doctor say, It's not so bad. Only the tip went in. The Maltese Falcon became a massive hit, helping to invent film noir as a genre and taking Bogey's stardom to the next level. Still, it took another bad decision by George Raft to bring another career-defining role to Humphrey Bogart. It's December 1941 in Casablanca. What time is it in New York? What? My watch stopped. I bet they're asleep in New York. I bet they're asleep all over America. It's become almost a cliche to say that no one on the set of Casablanca thought they were making a masterpiece. But it's worth noting that more than that, no one on the set was particularly happy to be there. Ingrid Bergman thought it was ridiculous that the script was being rewritten seemingly every night. She didn't understand why no one could decide how the love triangle would resolve, whether her Ilsa would stay in Casablanca with Rick or get on a plane with her husband. Bogart wasn't happy with the constantly evolving script either. He was also being constantly harassed by his wife, who was sure he was having an affair with Bergman, which he wasn't. But Mayo warned Bogart that if he did stray, she would kill him. And everyone believed her. Louise Brooks would contend that almost no one was as responsible for Bogart's success as was Mayo Metho. According to Brooks, Mayo set fire to Bogart, allowing him to unleash the envy and aggression that he had been stockpiling for years as a frustrated actor and unhappy man, and harness those demons into a compelling screen presence. But once the new bogey persona became a hit, finding its ideal vehicles in the Maltese Falcon and then Casablanca, Mayo had outlived her usefulness, and seven years of domestic battling had run Bogart into the ground. He didn't sign up for Howard Hawks's to have and have not looking for a new love. But he was ready for it when it found him. Howard Hawks had this idea. He wanted to find a girl who he could turn into an American Marlena Dietrich and cast Bogart, who he called the most insolent man in movies, 
opposite a woman who was even more insolent than he was. Hawks figured two cool customers would create a new kind of friction. Lauren Bacall later said she thought Hawks had tried to mold her into his personal, ideal woman, and that his interest was not purely professional. That suspicion was confirmed by the testimony of Hawks' wife, Nancy, a socialite who had been nicknamed Slim. Slim Hawks spotted Bacall, then a 19-year-old model named Betty Persky, dressed as a Red Cross nurse on the cover of Harper's Bazaar. I don't know if she can act or not, Slim told her husband, but she can certainly look at you. Slim was 26 years old at this time, and she had married the much older Hawks three years earlier, three years into an affair that ended the director's long-running first marriage to the sister of actress Norma Shearer. But by 1944, the honeymoon was definitely over. Hawks had a gambling problem and was incapable of being faithful. He treated his stylish second wife as a well-dressed prop, the embodiment of what became known as the Hawksian woman. Sexy, but no nonsense. Chic, but in menswear-inspired suits. Assertive, direct, and independent. I'm not saying I was the inspiration for the Hawks woman, Slim wrote in her autobiography. Rather, until he met me, the woman of his dreams was only in his head. And until Howard got to Bacall, there hadn't been an actress to make that dream come alive on screen. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. Hawks had Bacall's character, Marie, nicknamed Slim. For Bacall's first publicity shoot and later in the film, Hawks dressed the actress in clothes borrowed from his own wife. And he consulted Slim for dialogue advice, asking her what she'd say in a given situation and passing notes along to screenwriters Jules Firthman and William Faulkner. Slim's friends recognized some of the most famous lines in the film as reminiscent of her gift for dry provocation. Lines like this. Who was the girl, Steve? Who was what girl? The one who left you with such a high opinion of women. She must have been quite a gal. You think I lied to you about this, don't you? Well, it just happens there's 30-odd dollars here. Not enough for boat fare or any other kind of fare. Just enough to be able to say no if I feel like it. And you can have it if you want it. I'm sorry, Slim. But I still say you're awful good, and I wouldn't Oh, I forgot. You wouldn't take anything from anybody, would you? That's right. You know, Steve, you're not very hard to figure. Only at times. Sometimes I know exactly what you're going to say. Most of the time. The other times, 
The other times, you're just a stinker. The great irony of To Have and Have Not is that in creating a movie star in the image of his own wife, presumably for him to have an affair with, Howard Hawks unwittingly invented the perfect on- and off-screen match for Humphrey Bogart. When Bogie and Bacall first met, she remembered later, there was no clap of thunder, no lightning bolt, just a simple how-do-you-do. When they started shooting the film, she was so nervous she could hardly stop shaking, and he'd kid around with her to try to get her to relax. It helped a little, as did Bacall's realization that she could steady herself by keeping her chin down near her chest, her eyes focused up at Bogart. This counteracting of vulnerability looked, on camera, like strength, and it would become Bacall's trademark, thanks to Warner Brothers' savvy marketing of the 19-year-old as the look. The character Bacall was playing was forward, knowing, unafraid to make a major play for a man, and apparently accustomed to landing her prey. She was, as Bacall would put it, a wanton, life-bitten woman of the world. Lauren Bacall, meanwhile, was a self-described flirt, but she was also a virgin who really had no experience with fully grown men to speak of. Whatever was happening between her and Bogart when the cameras were rolling, she wasn't cognizant that anything was developing between the two of them until one day, about three weeks into the picture. Bogart came to Bacall's dressing room to say goodnight to her at the end of a shooting day, and suddenly took her chin into his hands and kissed her. She wrote her phone number on the back of a book of matches. Late that night, he called. A daily lunch date turned into late-night meetings at her apartment. They'd hide in her car, parked on an anonymous stretch of Selma Avenue in Hollywood. Hedda Hopper came to the set of the movie and, clearly perceiving that something was going on, warned Bacall to watch out for Mayo. But Bogart told Bacall that he had been forced into marrying Mayo. He told her that he only drank because it was the only thing he could do to put up with the marriage. And Bacall believed every word. Hawks was eager to disabuse Bacall of her schoolgirl notions of romance. He told her, he isn't in love with you. He's in love with the part that you're playing. Hawks told her that this sort of thing happened all the time. He told her that she was on the verge of blowing her big break. He threatened to sell her contract to a studio on Poverty Row. Bacall, who had already been afraid that Hawks, who had given her numerous indications that he was casually anti-Semitic, would figure out that she was a Jew and call her contract off, came to Bogart in tears. He eased her worries. No, baby, he won't send you to Poverty Row, Bogart told her. Hawks, he said, was just upset because his Galatea was slipping away. Svengali was losing control. Bogart did have real feelings for Bacall. But the shoot ended, and he returned to his life with Mayo. He and Bacall did start writing love letters, and once a week when he was on Coast Guard patrol duty on Balboa Island, Bacall would make the two-hour drive to see him. One night he called her, drunk, at 4 a.m. It was pouring rain. He told her he was walking up Highway 101 and to come pick him up. She did. She always came when he called. 
But then Mayo promised to quit drinking, and Bogart told Bacall that he had to give his marriage another chance, at least for a little while. So they stopped seeing each other, stopped speaking. He sent her roses on her 20th birthday, but that was her only indication that he was thinking of her as much as she was thinking of him. To Have and Have Not was released in October 1944. Bacall became an instant sensation. And then she, Hawks, and Bogart immediately started shooting The Big Sleep. The detente between the lovers continued. And then Bogart started calling again, always in the middle of the night, usually after a drunken domestic fight. And then he moved into the Beverly Hills Hotel. And then he went back home because Maya was sick and she was in the hospital and, and she had promised to stop drinking for good. And then she got out of the hospital and started drinking again. Bogart called Bacall at 5 a.m. one night. He was home, and Mayo was with him. I miss you, baby, he said into the phone. Another voice came on the line. Listen, you Jewish bitch, Mayo said. Who's going to wash his socks? You? But it still took months for Bogart to commit to ending his third marriage. Months spent making promises to Bacall while repeatedly going back to Mayo for one more try. Early in his career, he had spent so much time going back and forth between Broadway and Hollywood, never really committing to one or the other, and that vacillation kept him from really finding his niche in either. Now, once again, his inability to act decisively, to break off with the past and run to the future, was painfully delaying the inevitable. Mayo may have been a disaster, but he still had his doubts about Bacall. Would she sideline her so-promising, just-beginning career to be Mrs. Humphrey Bogart? He worried that she was too young, or that he was too old. She'll be gone in five years, Bogart lamented to Peter Laurie. Laurie responded, Five years is better than nothing. Turns out they had twelve Bogart finally moved out of his marital home after Christmas 1944. Mayo went to Reno to begin the six-week residency required for divorce, and Bogart bought Bacall a ring. Cole Porter's Don't Fence Me In was a hit that season, and Bogart, in New York, sent Bacall a telegram. It said, Please fence me in, baby. The world's too big out here, and I don't like it without you. In February, the press found out about the love triangle. In May 1945, Bogie and Bacall were married. By Bacall's account, it was pretty much as close to marital bliss as it gets. They had two kids, Stephen, named after Bacall's character's nickname for Bogie's character in To Have and Have Not, and Leslie, named after Leslie Howard. Bogart didn't force Bacall to quit acting, but he was insistent that they never be apart meaning she couldn't go away to shoot on location, and she needed to accompany him when he did. He was terrified Bacall would have an onset affair. Bogart himself reportedly carried on a decades-long affair with his hairdresser, Verita Thompson. This, according to Thompson herself, who Bogart's biographer, Stefan Confer, called a tireless self-promoter. After his fourth marriage, Bogart chilled out on the drinking a little, but... There were still stories. There was a time in 1949 when he and a friend showed up at the nightclub El Morocco with giant stuffed pandas as their dates. 
and a model tried to grab Bogart's panda, and Bogart shoved her away. Get away from me, I'm a happily married man. And don't touch my panda. The model charged Bogart with assault, but the judge declared that the panda was his property and he could defend it. And the whole incident only made Bogart more beloved, especially by Bacall. She was right there for the carousing that happened at home, dubbing their group of drinking buddies, which included Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, and Sid Luft, and David Niven, the original Rat Pack. The drinking didn't hurt him. It was Bogart's smoking that was serious business. In 1956, after Greer Garson told him he should do something about his cough, Bogart went to a doctor and was diagnosed with cancer. He had surgery, but it didn't work. And so began a slow, painful decline. One night, 10 months into his illness, Bogart asked his wife to sleep next to him, above the covers. He woke up several times during the night, feeling like he was being suffocated. In the morning, the couple watched a movie on TV and received visits from the doctor and Frank Sinatra. Bacall left the house briefly to pick up the kids from Sunday school, and when she returned, her husband had fallen into a coma. Within 24 hours, he would be dead. She never got to say goodbye. Lauren Bacall's life, which ended in August after 89 years, has been defined in large part by her relationship to Humphrey Bogart, and that's a definition which she has embraced and invited by publishing memoirs that hold her first marriage up as one of the great romances of all time. But Bacall lived for 57 years after Bogart's death, and she worked for most of them. She also very quickly, after the passing of her first husband, discovered that love isn't always smooth sailing. And that was a life lesson delivered to her by none other than Frank Sinatra. Join us next week, won't you, as we explore Bacall after Bogey. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, and follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night.